0: We are starting a five-week series uh, on the five slogans of the Reformation. And the purpose of this is not just to win you over to a certain mindset, or this is not meant to be a history lesson, but this is to help us understand the beauty and the power of the gospel, of how God works in salvation. And uh, today we are going to start off that we are saved by grace alone. And investigating what does that really mean and the power and the beauty of what does it mean to be saved by grace and how does that transform us to be better worshipers and lovers of people. The title of the sermon is called Grace Works. Grace works. Not only does it work for our salvation, but it is also a working activity in our life grace works. So bless you. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And you were dead. You were what? Dead. dead. You were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we move on. Father God, I want to thank you for the fact that we are saved by grace that there is nothing in our uh, the salvation thing that we could claim as our doing. It is a total free gift of grace. Lord, I pray that our, our hearts will just expand and that we would revel in this beautiful thing called grace and that we would see how it is working in our life, that it works. But Lord, may it also have an outworking in our family, in our church, in our community, and across the globe. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you wanted to give Missio Day a label, what kind of a church we are, many of you would come up with a lot of different definitions. Uh... Some people might say, well, Missio Dei Church, if I had to describe it, it's a young church, or it's a missional church, or some people might say it's a church of fruit and nuts. You know, we're, all kind of, we're a church of granola, you know, really odd mixture of people put together into one building and one family. But when put together, it's amazingly good. And it works things out. It is, those are different descriptors, but at the same time, if we go on deeper and say, what kind of church is Missio Day Church? You might use, or you might not because you don't know what it means, you might describe us as a reformed church. I personally prefer the, the term reforming church but we are part of a reformed tradition and and fundamentally what this means is that we take seriously what are called the five solas or the five alones that arose out of the 16th century reformation and those are sola scriptura which means that scripture alone sola gratia which means grace alone sola fide faith alone, solus Christus, by Christ alone, and soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And a proper emphasis of these essentials will go a long way in developing an ever-increasing God-centeredness in our lives, in our churches, and in our world. As long as a church remains deeply committed to Scripture as our all-sufficient and final authority for all that we believe and all that we do, we will find ourselves more and more deeply committed to the gospel truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the result will be this ever-increasing God-centeredness where God alone will receive all the glory in all spheres of life, in all places in our world. God will increasingly receive more and more glory in our world. So as we we talk about this, we are going to be talking about doctrine. And I have friends and even family members that kind of cringe even at the word doctrine because they fear that doctrine does what? It divides. Man, you start talking about that doctrine, you believe in that doctrine. Man, that excludes those people who believe that doctrine. But doctrine is important. Doctrine matters. Why? Because doctrine motivates us. Doctrine motivates us. And when properly understood, the doctrine of the gospel, when properly understood, it motivates us to love God more. And it motivates us to love others So therefore, those who are saved through faith will live by faith. And those who are saved by grace will be gracious. So doctrine matters. So as we consider Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we're going to learn that saving grace actually works. And this is the legitimate conclusion based on Paul's inspired words in which he just revels in God's grace as here revealed in Ephesians 2. Now there might be debate on how grace works and there might even be debate on how these works look, but it is beyond dispute that grace works. And I want us to see that the gospel experienced grace The gospel experience will always express itself in a multitude of ways. As we experience the gospel more richly, more purely, as we understand everything about this transaction between God and his people, it will always express itself in rich and beautiful and powerful ways. And not the least of which will be loving our neighbors as ourselves. In fact, we are created, if you read this carefully, we are created in Christ Jesus for such a work. We are a workmanship that expresses itself in such a loving behavior. So no doubt there's an ultimate expression, the, the most ultimate expression for such a profession of love is to seek the salvation of our neighbors and our friends and our family members' souls, That is how we love our neighbors is to to seek their salvation that they may know Jesus Christ. And so we need to be grounded in this gospel of God's grace, this good news of God's grace. We need to be deeply planted, understanding how does God work so that we can love our neighbors by sharing with them. This is the good news. So in this study, we are going to study the truth that salvation is by grace alone. And we'll come to appreciate that just as with saving faith, grace also works. So we're going to start off with a number of different headings. The first one is this, talking about our amazing privilege. And it's going to be chapter one. And Todd challenged me to get it all into one page. We'll see. It will help us to briefly understand A broad overview of chapter 1 before we come specifically to our text in chapter 2. Basically, chapter 1 highlights the amazing privilege of being children of God. It highlights that. And one of the main reasons that Paul wrote this letter was to highlight God's grace in forming a new people, one new people out of many different people. This was the nature of a new covenant church. Paul wanted the Ephesians who were primarily Gentiles to appreciate what God has done in their salvation. Further, he wanted them to appreciate the glorious work that God was doing through building his church. In chapter one, Paul tells these believers that he had been praying for them ever since he heard about their salvation. And and he says that he's been praying that God would give them a special, specific kind of spiritual revelation. And there's three things that he wanted them to see. First, he wanted them to see the hope of their calling in Christ Jesus. That there's hope. he have been saved by grace, but there's hope in that. And second, he wants them to see the riches of this inheritance that they have. Both now and in eternity, forever. You have this rich inheritance in Christ. And he also wants them to see this exceeding, exceeding greatness of Christ's power toward them, which he says saved them. A power that Paul was taking great pains to emphasize was currently available for them because of the lordship of Christ. Each of these three blessings were available because of grace hope, your inheritance, the power of Christ are available to you because of grace. This is why he, he moves on to into chapter 2, starting off by saying, and you, and you. Paul is about to explain to them how God in his grace chose them and saved them and to make them a part of this privileged people. In, in this... Grace, this word grace per capita, is found the most in this book. More than any other New Testament writing. And in this book, Paul highlights the enormous privileges of being a Christian. And he wanted to make sure that they realized that this was undeserved, unmerited, and unconditional. In other words, it was by grace alone that you have been saved. And this morning... I want us to understand this amazing grace as well. There's a historical context here. Chapter 19 of of the book of Acts. Paul went to Ephesus. He spent two years in Ephesus, preaching the gospel, meeting with people, Dialoguing and debating all kinds of stuff for two years reaching the jews and the gentiles and what happened? God by his spirit came and changed people's hearts in such a way that what happened? People started giving their lives to christ and Received him as lord and savior of their life to the point that it started so drastically to affect the economy That a riot broke out And Paul and Silas were in grave danger of their lives because people were giving up idolatry. They gave it up. They gave it up. The gospel of the grace of Jesus, the good news of the grace of God has such a saving impact that the surrounding society began to feel the effects economically. When you consider history, you will realize that the recipients of this letter have been privileged to experience God's grace. They have been delivered from the clutches of paganism and have been set free from the bondage of sin, self, and Satan. They've been released from all those clutches. And perhaps Paul knew that they needed this reminder of their spiritual privileges. And here's the the beautiful thing. So do you. You need to be reminded of your privileges of being a Christian in Christ. And such a re- remembrance results in grace worshiping and grace working. First, we need to hear grace speaking. In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 2, the first thing that Paul reminds them, is these Christians, is that when it comes to The saving of sinners. God's power is truly awesome. God's power to save sinners is truly awesome. In fact, it must be because our problems are enormous. Our sin nature is huge. Look look at how Paul describes it in the first few verses. He said, and he made you alive. Because why is that a big deal? Because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You you were walking in this course of the world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind. And we were children of wrath, just as the others. We must summarize these words, and we could summarize them using the words of John Murray, who said, salvation is of God, and it is only of Him if it is all of Him. All of Him. We can see God's amazing power in the light of our condition. Paul describes us as dead in our trespasses and our sins. We need to appreciate our condition if we will... appreciate our condition if we appreciate God as a cause of our conversion. In other words, we will never appreciate saving grace, God saving grace to us until we come to appreciate the seriousness of our guilt. Paul tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He doesn't say that we were sick. He doesn't say that we were dysfunctional. He doesn't say that we were comatose. He doesn't say that we were paralyzed. He says that we were dead. We were dead. And this has rendered us absolutely hopeless in ourselves. Hopeless for only God can raise the dead. Only God can raise the dead. By the way, this doesn't mean that we were dead to religion or spirituality. It just means that we were dead to any relationship with God. There was no appetite for the things of God. We were dead. Consider that. Your life before Christ, you were the living dead. You were just walking about hopeless no inheritance, and no power within you, you were dead. But we also live in this culture of a seeker-sensitive society, and and this philosophy has so infiltrated our churches as well. It's foolish to think that the church must cater to unbelieving seekers. Hear me out. If God does not first seek seek the unbeliever, the unbeliever is incapable of seeking God. You're absolutely incapable of seeking God. Now, there's many of your friends and neighbors who are unbelieving that might be attending, the church, attending a church, and they might be seeking many good things. They might be seeking happiness. They might be seeking they might be seeking a, a happier marriage, but they are not seeking God. That person is still dead. This is not to say that we should not discourage our our unbelieving friends and neighbors and family members to come to be a part of a church, because they need to attend hear more of the gospel to be exposed to the gospel repeatedly but we do not need to tailor our events here on sunday morning so that it's sleek cool and sexy and get the lights and the machines and the fog machines going and have a really cool band going, just so that we can reach seekers no that makes no sense they're still dead we must not fool ourselves into thinking that unbelievers can seek god Without first God's initiative. Period. To try to make our services comfortable for unbelievers makes about as much sense as building a restaurant at a cemetery. Think about that. It's just not going to create an appetite for the dead. It's hard but it's true. Paul also says, we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We are on on a path of defiant self-destruction, controlled by the spirit of the age rather than being controlled by the spirit of God. We are foolishly following the crowd. We are indeed sons and daughters of disobedience. Children characterized by unbelief. Disobedience alienates us from God. And this is a humanly insurmountable problem. Everyone is born running away from God. Even that cute, beautiful child you are holding in your arms just minutes after birth. That child is running away from God broken they're not pure innocent oh my gosh have you ever been around children there's no such thing as a pure and innocent child they are broken we must face the reality that believers are sons and daughters of disobedience they cannot bring forth fruit of salvation because they have no life in christ it's just absolute foolishness to try to plas- tape plastic fruit, living fruit, to a dead tree. Obedience is a mark of Jesus said that if we love him, we will do what? We'll keep his commandments, right? If you love me, you will obey. You will keep my commandments. So those who do not keep his commandments, do not obey love him, right? Oh, that's hard. You don't keep my commandments. That must mean that you don't love me. And those who do not love him do not keep his commandments. So disobedience is a mark of an unregenerate, an unchanged life. Yes, okay, many of you in here are going, okay, but I've got this one sin issue that keeps on creeping up to the forefront. It's One of those sweet sins that I always kind of go back to. Is it a sin that you are constantly repenting of that you, in your head and in your spirit, you're going, Lord, help me kill this. It's always coming back. Absolutely. We are all in that place. And if you don't say amen, there's something wrong with you. But it's God's grace that gives us the power of Christ to be changed. As believers, we were also conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind. St. Clair Ferguson says: the orientation of our whole life was a God-rejecting manner. Our whole life was one of rejecting God in its entirety. Reformed theology speaks about total depravity or Radical corruption of humanity. Total depravity. This does not necessarily mean that every human being is as bad as he or she could be. It means that everything about us was at enmity with God. Everything. It means that the fall in Genesis chapter 3 infected every fiber of our being. Every fiber, every cell, every molecule that is in you, every thought, everything that is you is infected with sin. We are totally deprived. Paul references our mind in this verse, which implies that we are making deliberate choices that are defiantly contrary to the will of God. Before Christ. Paul later describes unbelievers as having their Their understanding darkened, being alienated from life, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Isaiah says this, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all hear me say, unbelieving friends and families and neighbors and co-workers can do good things, but not godly things. That is, we are entirely incapable in our fallen nature. We are totally incapable of pleasing God. Isaiah also describes even our good works as Filthy rags. Our good works, as filthy rags, we all fade as a leaf, and all in our iniquities, like the wind, and they have taken us away. In short, we are alienated from God in every way, regardless of good works, and it's impossible for us to bridge the gap that exists between us. Possible. On top of that, hear this, and these are hard words in our nature before Christ. We were all damned. Paul ends this description of our former life, of, as of the former life of believers, as stating that we are by nature children of wrath. This, this, the word wrath pictures growing ripe into something and therefore speaks of this growing indignation. Unbelievers are characterized by this waging war against God, whether they realize it or not. And despite the fact that it is absolutely hopeless to rage war against God, fallen man continues to do it. In fact, the more and more that he tries to even bridge a gap, the greater the indignation he adds because of his self-righteousness. John Stott, in talking about this section, says that Paul plumbs the depths of pessimism about man. Man, Paul, you are going to, you're going down, 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 down deep and saying you are talking pessimistically about man. But that's exactly what fallen man needs to understand. We need to understand that. He needs it more than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Man needs to be alarmed about our guilt before a holy God. We need to be alarmed about that. Things are not okay between God and humanity. They are not good. They need to be made right. So is there hope? According to verse 4 and 6, there is hope. And that hope resides in God's amazing concern and therefore His gracious choice. But God, (laughs) but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God is gracious to all, in some ways. And He is gracious to some in all ways. So, when it, comes to, so it is when it comes to salvation. Paul opens this section with some, some of the most awe-inspiring words. Most awe-inspiring two words of Scripture. But God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor, says, these two words, in some ways, are the essence of the gospel. It's the essence of the gospel. But God, this this type of contrast is used time and time again in Scripture to highlight God's grace in saving sinners. But God, you were dead, but God did this. So there is hope. Stock correctly says that Paul. Goes from plumbing the depths of pessimism about man to the rising, to rising to the heights of optimism about what God has done. So Paul, Paul plumbing the depths of the pessimism about man, but then he's rising to these these mountaintop peaks of what God is able to accomplish through saving humanity. So God's choice to save people was completely unconditional, completely. That is, there's nothing in the elect that merits God's favor. He chose to save because he chose to love. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, he saved us from our trespasses. Warren Wiersbe said of the doctrine of election that if we try to explain it, If we try to explain the doctrine of election, of how God chooses and elects certain people, we are going to be confounded. I, I don't understand how God does this. But he goes on to say, if we try to explain it away, we could lose our soul. That is, there is no salvation apart from God's good grace. God predestined us according to Ephesians 1.5, predestined us to adoption as sons by God Jesus Christ to himself, according to the pleasure of his goodwill. It was of his own will. He brought us forth by the the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This was God's pleasure to choose some people to represent him, to be saved. We brought nothing to the table. You brought nothing to the table. God did it all himself. And all this happened by grace. And incredibly by grace, God even raised us up, us up together. And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. Though we didn't deserve it, we were resurrected to reign with Christ. And that, that is amazing condensation indeed, where, where God came down and chose us to, to reign with him. God does all the work in raising us to new life. He gives us new hearts by which we are even enabled to believe. He regenerates us. He makes us alive so that we are able to respond to the command to repent and believe repent and believe if we give ourselves any credit to this transaction what do we do we will be minimizing the grace of god in verses seven through nine paul's highlight paul highlights god's amazing purpose which is that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding greatness of riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in christ jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of god not of works, lest anyone should boast so because of salvation is by grace alone god alone gets all the glory through all the ages paul speaks of us having been saved primarily of course this speaks of justification Justification is one of those Christian words that are important Christian words. Justification talks about our right standing because of a transaction that took place where Christ shed his blood and his blood is upon us. And now God views humanity, those who he has chosen to save by the blood of Christ. He looked at humanity through the blood of Christ just as if we have never sinned. Our standing has gone from children of wrath to Children of God. And God looks at us and says, welcome. That's my child because of the work of my son. So when we talk about justification, it can never be separated from sanctification, which is being made holy and our future glorification where we will be reigning with Christ for all eternity. Those who have been justified will be sanctified, being made holy and ultimately, we will be glorified. It's clear that these verses, from these verses, that even faith, hear me on this, because it's one of those things that kind of gets squishy for some of us. Faith is not even our part. Faith is not even your part in this transaction of salvation. We are saved by grace alone through through faith. God gives us a conduit of how to respond. You are saved by grace through faith. And where does that come from? We were dead. We are wholly incapable of even exercising faith. Totally incapable of repenting. Faith and repentance are gifts from God. Technically, faith is not a condition of our being justified. It is a gift given by God to those whom he changes. Paul says it was granted to us on behalf of Christ to believe in him. Faith is granted to you on behalf of Christ. It is a gift. Peter says in, in Acts chapter 3 that faith comes through him. So, does that make you uncomfortable? It totally takes you out of the driver's seat, right? You, you're not even in the driver's seat. You're hardly even in the car. You, you, you are totally out. You're not even a, pa- a person walking along the sidewalk in this car of salvation. You, you're in a whole different world, on a whole different planet it takes you out of out of total control and if it makes you uncomfortable ask yourself why why should it make you uncomfortable that your salvation is entirely by god's grace are you so foolish to think that the clay has any right to instruct the potter in this gift of salvation it is by god's grace And finally, verse 10, this is the beautiful part. I'm sorry, the whole thing is beautiful, but this is where it kind of gets really good. This amazing grace that saves lost people produces an amazing people. In an amazing people. When was the last time that you have been told in church, you are an amazing people? Not like this warm, fuzzy, man, I really like you. I really like you. You're playing by the rules really good. God's grace produces an amazing people. Christians are amazing people. According to verse 10, we are his workmanship, his craftsmanship created by Christ Jesus. The creator of the world says, listen, You are my workmanship. You are my craftsmanship. And God does not screw up. He makes beautiful things out of messy people. And this is beautiful. This... This verse reveals an amazing truth that those saved by God's amazing grace become amazing people. Yes, that is you. That is me. That's brothers and sisters across the globe who are worshiping this Lord's Day and other days during the week. These are his people. God's people are made up of all kinds of people who experience the same privileges because we have experienced the same power and pursue the same person, purpose of manifesting good works to ultimately glorify God. In fact, increasingly, I pray that we will become more and more passionate about this. And this, of course, is all of grace. All about grace. There's two major realities that this verse tells about us. First we see that God's grace is not arbitrary. It's not happenstance. It's like, oh, it just kind of happened. While grace is unconditional, it does have a purpose. It has an aim. It has a target. It has an outcome. God chooses to save people who will glorify him in certain ways. Glorify him in certain ways. And his salvation is not just a once for all transaction that says, okay, I was done with you, April April 10, 1992. Boom, done. All right. His salvation has a purpose. It is well planned out and moves beyond. Second, we will learn that God's grace will manifest itself, be made more known, more visible. We are saved apart from our good works but in order to do good works. So in other words, we're, we're saved not because we've done good things, but we are saved to, towards, towards good things. John MacArthur says this, the same power that created us in Christ Jesus, that same power empowers us to do the good works for which he has redeemed us. These are verifiers. These good works are verifiers of true salvation. Righteous attitudes and righteous acts proceed from transformed lives now living in the heavenlies. Your good works are verifications of grace working in your life. If you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, those are, your good works are verifiers that all of it has worked and is working in your life. In other words, there's a real sense in which the believer is so to live that heaven is brought to bear on earth. Since heaven is filled with mercy and grace and love and kindness, since heaven is so filled with those things, then those who are seated there should be manifesting these characteristics where they are currently living on earth. Does that make sense? If heaven is filled with these things and we scripture says that we are seated with him in the heavenly places there's some way that when this transaction happened it's not we're stuck here but there's this deep connection that we are now children of this most high god and we are seated with him because our justification is made sure our salvation is stuck with him and never leaving in some way, how we are reigning with Christ and been transformed by him, that kind of culture should be brought to bear here on this earth, how we live out our faith. But we do need to remember that the text tells us that we are a peculiar people. Some of you are going, yeah, I know that. And we are a prepared people. Jesus tells us in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. The question that must be addressed is, what kind of fruit is this? What is he talking about? Well, I think we, if, we, if we reflect on the fact that Jesus was sent by the father so jesus sends us if we can think through that we can grasp the answer jesus the father sent jesus to the world to do what to serve to give his life as a ransom for many so we too are called to serve and to bring the message of redemption to to many but jesus also preached the gospel and ministered to practical needs It's not an either-or, but rather a both. Of course, spiritual needs take priority because good works don't save people. Niceties don't save people. It's the gospel, the power of the gospel that saves people. So we should do whatever we can also to, to meet the practical needs of people enabled by God. Each Christian is a work of grace. And the display of this reality is that it works, in that it works, that it flows from that grace. In other words, grace works. And it it would seem that the display is one that is gracious. It is gracious. In a world characterized by spiritual death, by Systemic disobedience, sinful depravity, and certain damnation, this is amazing. Yes, by God's grace, God's people are amazing. Let let this sink in. When you feed the hungry in Christ's name, that is amazing. It's a gift of grace, the working out of grace. Grace. When you care for a destitute widow for God's sake, it's amazing. When you care for an orphan in Jesus' name, that is amazing. When you care for those who are in turmoil over the pregnancy because you love Jesus, that is amazing. Every time you open your home to those who are lost and broken and lonely, that is an amazing work of grace. Every time you contribute towards the gift, the the. The mission of the church, God's kingdom expanding, that is amazing. Those are gifts of grace from God. Those are gifts of responding to God's amazing grace. We can apply this in a myriad of other ways. It has been said that it is the whole man with all of his relationships who is converted to Jesus as Lord of all that he is and does. By necessity, then those saved by grace will manifest grace in all areas of life. When we're saved by grace, we manifest grace in every aspect of life. I want you to be amazed. Salvation is by grace alone. Totally by grace alone. My challenge is now by God's grace. Live like... Actually live like you've been saved by grace. Have you ever seen somebody in a car accident afterwards, and their heart is just pumping, and they're alive? You know, they're, after this car accident, they could have been dead, and they just get. Out, I don't believe this all just happened. And then the days and the weeks afterwards, they're still kind of reveling in this. I've been saved. I could have been totally cremated by that incoming eighteen-wheeler, but I, I'm alive today. I, I'm living. I'm breathing. So too, every day as people who are saved by grace live like we are saved by grace. Lives of just tremendous worship. thankful to God. God, I did not even deserve this meal. Could could that just transform the way you pray for your lunch today? I, I deserve none of this. I I, I don't deserve this wife. I don't deserve these kids. I don't deserve this income. or I don't even deserve this lack of income. I don't uh, don't deserve these people, this friendship. I don't deserve a a warm place to sleep. I don't deserve any of this. But by grace, I've been saved. And God, you have been gracious to me. You've been kind to me. And therefore, God, I want to respond as one who has been saved by grace. It changes everything. 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 So let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this doctrine that we are saved by grace alone, that there is nothing that we could have done to bring about life. but you saved us by grace because you are rich in mercy. Rich in mercy, Lord. We we deserved your wrath upon us because of our sin nature, but you, God, because of your mercy and with the great love with which you loved us, you saved us by grace and raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places Lord, I thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that we as people who have been saved by grace may live gracious lives to those who are perishing, who need to hear the gospel, to let them know that your good works are just rubbish. You need the gift that God gives. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Lord, may we be creative in how we express this gift of grace that you've given to us. Lord, for the number of people here today, there are hundreds of ways that we can express graciousness. Impress on us, Lord, ways and to whom we need to be gracious to so that they can see and hear word and deed the power of the gospel that will lead them to salvation. So thank you for this doctrine, this beautiful gem. That's by grace alone that we've been saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the Lord's Supper, this meal that we take on a daily basis, we are reminded again of the importance of this grace. He has prepared a table for us, for those who are saved. And he, at, this, at this meal, we are nourished by Christ Himself. We've heard the gospel. We, we look at the body broken for us, the blood shed for us, and we are, immediately we should be reminded of what? The grace of God. So we come with heavy hearts saying, Lord, again, I know that I am this work in progress. I am being made holy and I so need your gospel again today. But Lord, I come to this table also with a, a light heart, a heart of worship, knowing that I've been saved by grace. I'm a work in progress. So are they. But I've been saved by grace. So if you have completely trusted Christ with all your heart, responded to his grace through faith, you are welcome to confess before, confess your, your sins, but come with a heart ready rejoice and enjoy this Christ who gave his life on the night that he was betrayed Jesus took bread and broke it and said this is my body broken for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way after the meal he took the cup of blessing and pouring it out said This is my blood poured out in a new covenant for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Those who are serving, please come forward.